But they're like, yeah, well, the Democrats are kind of good on policy, but they haven't done anything. And Trump's a racist, but you know what? The economy was good back then. That's what people are seeing. They're seeing things are not getting done. What good is it for me to vote for you on the issues if you don't get things done on those issues? Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. This is the 150th episode of Politicology, and it's our 75th roundup, and I'm excited to spend it with our outstanding panel today. Returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite. Lene Erickson. Lene is the Senior Vice President for the Social Policy and Politics Program at Third Way, and she also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Lene, it's so great to see you. How are you? I'm, I'm doing okay. Also returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite, Susan Del Percio. Susan is a highly sought-after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, writer, and MSNBC political analyst. Good morning, Susan. How are you? I am great. It's good to be with you guys. And congratulations, 150 episodes. That's awesome. You know, fun fact, you are also both on our 100th episode oh, together. Oh, wow. So. There you go. <laughs> on this week's roundup, First, the Democrats asking if the Biden White House can meet the urgency of the moment and the emerging party leaders who are stepping into the void. Then we'll look at the infrastructure that the new guard of Republicans are building in preparation for a return to power. We're also going to talk about the latest news coming out of the January 6th committee and the former Trump administration officials who are now speaking out. And finally, when we switch tracks over to Politicology Plus, We'll discuss the potential Republican dealmakers Democrats will rely on if they lose control of the House in November. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast filled with strategy and analysis you won't get anywhere else. And if you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. On Wednesday, CNN published a story about several White House fumbles over the last few weeks. Last Monday, dozens of celebrity Democratic supporters were on a call with White House aides to discuss the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. CNN described the mood on the call as fatalistic. Former Will & Grace star Deborah Messing expressed her frustration, yelling that there doesn't even seem to be a point to voting. Uh, CNN reports that others questioned why the call was happening. Um, this call comes as top Democrats have become increasingly frustrated with the White House, and a member of Congress described the White House as rudderless, aimless, and hopeless. In late June, three of Biden's top advisors were nearly 15 minutes late to a meeting on the House uh, with the House Democratic Caucus on messaging on the economy. And according to one of those House Democrats, the caucus got more frustrated after the presentation and the Q&A period. It's been now more than a week since the Supreme Court overruled Roe and six weeks since the draft of Dobbs leaked, but Biden aides are still arguing over releasing new action in response. On the day the Dobbs decision was released, White House counsel Dana Remus assured senior aides that the court wouldn't rule on abortion that day. The press aide assigned to that issue was actually walking to get coffee when the news alert hit. 
Uh, Biden's July 1st meeting with governors to talk about protecting abortion rights was so hastily planned that not one of them attended in person and several didn't even bother to join virtually. So CNN's reporting that few of Biden's advisors are pushing back on his, uh, quote, infamous inability to settle on decisions on issues from whether to lift Chinese tariffs or to cancel student loan debt. And I wonder what you're both making of the reports of the dysfunction in the White House. I think it's, you know, to be expected to hear lots of Republican criticism right now. But, Lene, as we head into the midterms, solidarity within the Democratic Party would really help things a lot right now. So what's going on? You know, I think there's really three things going on in in terms of Biden's ability to meet the moment on a lot of the issues that we're facing. Um, the first is that there are issues on which he just really can't do that much. So, you know, we're, we're talking about a decision overturning Roe. What is the president supposed to do about that? Um, if we really wanted the president to do something about it, we should have voted for Democrats earlier who could put justices on the Supreme Court who were going to actually uphold our constitutional rights. So the ship has sailed on that. And I think the fact that um, Democratic governors are now a more vocal um, spokesperson on this issue is because they actually have more power in this situation than Joe Biden does. If if he can't get the Senate to get rid of the filibuster to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, there are things he can do around the margins, and certainly he should, but he can't really, you know, undo this decision or take major action to um, help guarantee access to abortion. J.B. Pritzker can do more in Illinois because he can actually um, help folks in the surrounding states by making his state more accessible for folks who may need to travel. And he happens to be in a state that touches a lot of states where abortion is going to be illegal. So um, I understand that people are frustrated, but there just isn't that much that Biden can do here on abortion per se. I think, but there's two other things. I do think that on some of the issues, there is decision paralysis. And that is because there are internal disagreements happening within the White House about them. And Biden just hasn't made a call yet on which side to go with. So um, student debt is the perfect example. I work on that issue a ton. And there are folks within the White House that think they should cancel all student debt with a stroke of a pen. There are folks within the White House that think that would be political suicide and legally hugely dubious. So, you know, they're still fighting that out. And Biden hasn't um, made a decision about which side he's going to he's going to go with on that. And then the third thing I think is happening with some of these um, issues is that they are just allergic to looking like they are politicizing agency decisions because, you know, Donald Trump um, was famous for it. And so when they came in, they were like, we're just going to let independent bodies do their jobs. And um, and I really think they've actually overcorrected on that. I think we've talked about that in the past on some of the CDC things that, you know, they've they've been so hands off um, that they, you know, it, it's it's been actually, you know, not actually helpful. It's muddled the message um, and made it look like the White House doesn't always know what's going on in those instances. Um, so I think they they shouldn't um, overcorrect from that, you know, Trump making everyone do his bidding to, well, we can't even know what's happening in any of these independent agencies. Um, and that's a place where I think they could probably pull back a little bit. So, Susan, in, there's been a ton of reporting about this, and it seems to me like one of the big frustrations is that there's not enough 
rhetoric coming from the White House, even if there isn't substance, that there's not enough of a reflection of everyone's anger and frustration over everything that's happening right now. And that if we had a president who was a, you know, fantastic uh, orator, that now would be the time to, to, to give a big speech that sort of lets people know that he feels what they're feeling. And Biden's just not that guy. And uh, what it, what is the White House to do if you have a president who's not that guy, and yet um, you know he's he's sort of stuck on a lot of this, as Lene mentioned, and and can't do much substantively. Well, first you recognize you're not that guy, so that's a good thing actually, because Joe Biden going on that tour would be disaster. So fantastic, good for them for making the right call. There are a few things though that could be interesting that Biden could throw out there, or actually, really Chuck Schumer. Instead of taking a vote um, that w- you know that that they did a couple of months ago, that was in theory to codify Roe, which it wasn't because it went beyond Roe, which meant you were definitely going to lose. Why not look at some action that you don't get funding unless you unless you offer abortions for rape, incest, and life of the mother? Flip the script and put it on a lot of other Republicans to say no, 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 no. I am not for that. Like you cannot. You know, you have to make the 10-year-old girl have an abortion. Yeah, I mean, have the baby, rather. So there's that option. The other thing that I'm really shocked about right now is that the administration is not using their Democratic governors well. Every every governor, Democrat or Republican, is flush with cash this cycle. They all have it left over from COVID money. They're doing big things. Why aren't they thanking or relating with the White House the money they're putting in education to make up class time? Why aren't they putting, you know, the White House front and center when it comes to getting, you know, funding for uh, projects for senior centers or better air conditioning or better ventilation? Like these are things that the gov- that the White House could be doing. And they don't even have to do a lot of the work. The governors can be their cheerleaders and thanking them. Because, again, there's not a governor running for re-election that isn't happy with where their their budget is right now. DRR. It's amazing. But on on the bigger scale, I get what Lene is saying. I mean, Biden can't fix a lot. But if you keep saying you can't fix a lot, guess what? People start believing you can't fix a lot. And that's also the problem coming out of the White House. I think that Biden has to give a little more Nancy Pelosi type permission, which I mean that Nancy Pelosi always says to swing state Democrats. If you have to run against me to win, I'm okay with that. And I think they have to find some kind of balance there that they don't, you know, it doesn't become such a big story that they just say, you know, Tim Ryan's trying it in Ohio, for example. They're not being seen together, but he's not doing it that well. But I think that that's something that maybe the White House has to start looking at is allowing Democrats to run on their own and not lockstep with the president. I want to jump over to J.B. Pritzker in a minute, but Lene, I want your thoughts on that with the stuff that Susan just raised. I think that's right that, um, you know, you do need to give folks space to run as different kinds of Democrats. Um, But the truth is that um, more and more um, the uh, approval rating of the president or uh, the vote at the top of the ticket also translates down ballot. And so it's hard, for example, to outrun um, the top of the ticket more than four to six points, basically, at this point. Now, that that's an important four to six points, right? That could be the difference between 
between us losing 12 and us losing 50 House seats. So important points. But um, but you can't, for example, you know, outrun um, Joe Biden t- to the tune of 20 points. You know, we've seen this, um, you know, ask Heidi Heitkamp and Claire McCaskill and Jason Kander and all the other folks who have tried. So um, so I do think, you know, I've, I've long said that what Democrats need to be thinking about is helping Joe Biden raise his approval rating so that then they can get that little last bump and, and really, you know, get themselves over the top. But that goes back to the point about the Democratic governors. Like the, um, the fact that they're not feeling like they're all on the same team is very frustrating, right? Gavin Newsom and J.B. Pritzker and Joe Biden are on the same team and they should be acting like it rather than, you know, kind of positioning themselves um, to be, you know, a more important spokesperson and saying, um, whispering behind the scenes that maybe Joe Biden isn't the guy. So I do think um, we would be better off if we were coordinating those Democratic gubernatorial efforts with, um, you know, the, the national level conversation, which frankly, we're not doing particularly well at the moment. So Pritzker and Newsom and several other Democratic governors stepped into the spotlight after the Dobbs decision and the shooting in Highland Park, Illinois. And then Biden took the stage at a barbecue a few hours after Monday's shooting. And he said, you all heard what happened today. Things will get better still, but not without more hard work together. And in contrast, after a news conference after the shooting, Pritzker was a lot more fiery in in his tone. I think we have a clip of that. There are no words for the kind of evil that shows up at a public celebration of freedom, hides on a roof and shoots innocent people with an assault rifle. There are no words I can offer to lessen the pain of those families who will no longer associate the 4th of July with celebration, but instead with grief. Please know that our state grieves with you, that MK and I and our family grieve with you. It is devastating that a celebration of America was ripped apart by our uniquely American plague. If you're angry today, I'm here to tell you, be angry. I'm furious. I'm furious that yet more innocent lives were taken by gun violence. I'm furious that their loved ones are forever broken by what took place today. I'm furious that children and their families have been traumatized. I'm furious that this is happening in communities all across Illinois and America. I'm furious because it does not have to be this way. And then on Monday, uh, Gavin Newsom, California governor, uh, his reelection campaign released an ad targeting voters that probably won't be casting their ballot for him in November uh, because he released the ad on Fox News in Florida attacking DeSantis. And here's that clip. It's Independence Day. So let's talk about what's going on in America. Freedom is under attack in your state. Your Republican leaders, they're banning books, making it harder to vote, restricting speech in classrooms, even criminalizing women and doctors. I urge all of you living in Florida to join the fight or join us in California, where we still believe in freedom, freedom of speech, freedom to choose, freedom from hate, and the freedom to love. Don't let them take your freedom. Paid for by Newsom for California Governor 2022. So we can come back to the uh, the message in that ad because uh, I said Linnea, I see you chuckling, um, but but sort of as a, if you take both of those clips together, um, really what I what I want to hear, Susan, is how we should be thinking about 
the tension of someone who ran for president on a platform of lowering the temperature, right, uh, when there's now a desire for a strong leader and a strong voice on the issues that are important to Democrats. And is there a way that these two governors and other governors can be helping the president because they're uh, maybe better at this than he is right now? Or it's it, they're, they're, he's, in a, he's in a lane um, that, he's, like we said, he's just not that guy, right? Is there a way that they can be doing this to his benefit? Well, to have governors from pretty deep blue states is not necessarily the way to get from here to there for the president as far as meeting his goals to um, be more inclusive. However, they can do other things with their messaging. Like I said, with the cash they have in their budget, the things that they are promoting in state. How about giving the president just a little bit of credit there? There's nothing wrong with that. But the other thing is, is that the president needs to start saying that, hey, you wanted me to turn the temperature down? Actually, I have, because I got two things done that haven't been done in decades. We got an infrastructure bill and we did get changes for gun safety. Those are two huge wins that it it is beyond me how they seem so irrelevant. And ironically, they're both deemed irrelevant by Democrats. The Democrats say we didn't get enough on infrastructure. We didn't get Build Back Better, blah, blah, blah. That's what's wrong with it. And that gun safety, oh, well, you know, you didn't do anything really. It's just a drop in the bucket. So who cares? Okay, well, maybe just getting something done is really impressive. And on infrastructure, there's, a again, I'm sorry I keep going to the money, but it's what you show that you can deliver for a state, for a constituency. So those are big numbers and they don't know partisanship. When you say more funding for schools and more funding for infrastructure, people like it on both sides. So that's that's a really good one that they should be playing on. And Biden should, it's okay to say, yeah, we got some stuff done, but I'm also going to fight like hell to keep on the other issues that, yes, we're still divided, but we can, we have to, you know, we'll flex our muscle where we can. The one thing they cannot do though, Absolutely. Chuck Schumer must absolutely stop putting bills on the floor that fail, because if you keep losing every vote, you know what people think you are a loser. So they need to stop <laughs> doing that. I'm sorry. I've been doing yeah. a lot. Wait, Susan, are you saying that voters don't give you credit for all of the bills that you almost passed? Why would you Imagine say that? that. Like, it's just amazing. I'm doing these Hispanic uh, focus groups and listening to the people talk about, especially immigration. I mean, and it depends where, which state you're talking about it in. But they're like, yeah, well, the Democrats are kind of good on policy, but they, they can't do any. They don't do it. They, they haven't done anything. And Trump's a racist, but you know what? The economy was good back then. I'm not saying I agree with those statements. I'm saying that's what people are seeing. They're seeing that things are not getting done. What good is it for me to vote for you on the issues if you don't get things done on those issues? And I just got out of the field with some um, some research around the infrastructure bill, um, and uh, we saw that actually most people thought all of those policies were very good ideas, and most people thought it hadn't actually passed yet. Huh. You know why? <laughs> no one's because, talking about it. Because no one's talking about it because Democrats are talking about how we didn't get Build Back Better done instead of talking about the bill we did get done. So like two-thirds of people are like, yeah, that would be cool if Congress passed that. I wish they would. They had no clue. 
They had no so, clue. So, to so, your point, so, Susan. So maybe we should start talking about the things we did yeah, get done. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that, that, that's exactly it. So, so like what I, okay, so Lene, what I'm wondering is, uh, by, so Biden, Biden gets elected not with a mandate to do a bunch of things, but with a mandate to not be Trump, with a mandate to save us from catastrophe, with a mandate to turn down the temperature, right? And that's what he's done. And to Susan's point, in this, and as we know, right, you, uh, the we on this show, and also politicology listeners know, it, it is it is an enormous achievement to have gotten anything through this Congress, right? But the criticism from Democrats has been, we control everything, and why haven't we done more? And Deborah Messing's frustration, as she voiced on this call, was, I got you elected, I shouldn't have to do anything else, right? That's reportedly <laughs> what she said on this call, which just, you know, the, the, the you know, the, well, how That's out of special. touch that is speaks to. Anyway, <laughs> so why is it, what, were, were Democrats promised something in your view or, or sort of within the Democratic Party um, communications, uh, I'm trying not to use the word echo chamber, um, environment, right? Were they promised something more than what they're getting? I think that uh, there were two messages that were simultaneously sent by Biden in the campaign, and he kind of went back and forth between them. To voters, he said, let's get back to normal. Let's get things back on track. Let's make it, I, I, I was saying in, in 2020, it, it, his basic sales pitch was, you're not going to have to think about politics every day when I'm in office. And that sounded very very appealing after four years of Trump. So people were like, return to normalcy, check, got it. That's for, you know, regular human people who don't spend all their day talking about politics. Then you would go to, you know, the, the activists and the Twitterati and the, you know, folks who are driving these campaigns, and they were talking about, you know, we're going to be like FDR. We're going to deliver, you know, a whole new uh, new deal uh, for the American people. And if you went back to, like, my mom, she'd be like, what? I thought we were just getting back nope. to normal. Is that Nobody cool? asked for that, actually. Nobody asked for— and why? And you only have 50 so, votes, so stop. And it, well, and at the time, we didn't even have 50. Right. We had 48. So, um, yeah, I do think that there was, you know, there was a lot of hope for this, like, um, Grand New Deal revolution um, situation among the Twitterati. And they're frustrated they didn't get, you know, all everyone's $1.6 of student debt canceled with the stroke of a pen. But, again, Biden's not that guy. He never was. He never will be. And that's not the voters that elected him. And honestly, thank God that we have him, right? And I think Absolutely. there's just, the people are missing that. Um, We're not I worried do, about I, what what's happening with our nuclear ar arsenal. I mean, like, yeah, seriously, that's yeah. how we woke up that's every true. day. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Well, I, you know, I want to make one more point, though, on the governors. Like, I, I think it's, you know, it's cute. And I think I mentioned on one of um, the other weekly roundups in the past that Eric Adams was running, um, trolling uh, Ron DeSantis with billboards about how everyone should, you know, it says gay, 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 gay all over the billboard. Like, I think it's cute that, like, some of the Democratic governors from blue states are messing with Ron DeSantis, like, all in. But Gavin Newsom running ads for his California gubernatorial bid in Florida is not about helping Democrats. That's about helping Gavin Newsom and trying to make him into, you know, a leader in the Democratic Party. I would be much more interested in hearing from Gretchen Whitmer. Gretchen Whitmer 
is a Democrat who ran on fix the damn roads, who won in a very difficult state, who has gotten a ton done in Michigan, and who is simultaneously uh, challenging their trigger ban and um, running for re-election in, um, in a time when if the Republican wins that state, they are absolutely going to have an abortion ban. She is the one that should be the spokesperson for this issue, not Gavin Newsom, where they're going to let, you know, abortions be legal in California no matter what. That's nice. Again, troll Ron DeSantis all you want. But who we should be listening to is Gretchen Whitmer. Gretchen Whitmer, if you're listening, open invitation. Come talk to us. (laughs) On Tuesday... The Economist published a story about the new infrastructure and institutions that Republicans are building as they prepare to move back into power next year. And by Republicans, I think we should be clear. We're talking about the new right, as they're being referred to. Former Trump administration officials and, quote, like-minded wonks are building think tanks and advocacy organizations to draft policies and provide personnel for a new Republican right. So, Dating back to before the Reagan administration, conservatives have relied on think tanks like the Heritage Foundation and magazines like National Review to formulate strategies and policies that elected officials then can implement uh, when they take office. So they're starting with something. Trump's 2016 election win was unexpected and it didn't have the infrastructure of institutions that that matched his America First agenda because none of that was part of you know conservative uh, thought life. So Trump relied heavily on organizations like the Heritage Foundation to staff the administration, and this was really complicated by the fact that many of those people had opposed him. Um, there were a handful of Republicans who had experience and connections in Washington. Uh, they set out create new institutions to support the MAGA agenda, which again is not conservatism. The Claremont Institute um, was was one of the first to align itself with Trump. Uh, it's now known for its connection to John Eastman, who's the you know crazy lawyer who formulated Trump's plan to steal the 2020 election. Um, journals now have moved to promote the new rights ideas. Uh, the quarterly American Affairs, which launched in 2017, has now published articles defending Trump's industrial policy. Um, and I, I, I'm really curious about what you guys think about the things that they're embracing. So they've rejected the laissez-faire approach that uh, that that Republicans, you know, ha- defined their approach for a long time to in- industrial policy. Uh, it's it's a it's an economic statism. Um, they're also there's a, the American conservative. This is another. Uh, you know, it's older. Has argued for limits on American support for the war in Ukraine. So it's less interventionist. It's more isolationist. Um, another older periodical is First Things, and according to the Economist, they're, they've pushed for a pro-family welfare state to coincide with abortion bans, which is sort of directly addressing the one of the top criticisms uh, I've seen of pro-lifers, which is, okay, if you're not, you're not pro-life for the duration of a person, of a person's life, right? While the circulation numbers aren't large, they've given the new right thinkers a place to publish uh, and, and build their reputations. Um, Marco Rubio has taken up their proposal to create uh, 
firm-based workers' councils rather than labor unions in, in what to me is a play for uh, shoring up support among the working class, traditionally a democratic um, uh, uh, cohort, non-interventionism, economic statism, workers' councils. So like, this is stuff that I would have expected to see from Democrats a decade ago. And um, I want to talk, I'm really curious about what you think about the overlap here. Um, but Lene, probably what we ought to do is you should give folks a primer on maybe the relationship between think tanks and policymakers and how how that typically works um, in in inside Washington. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two components, right? There's the people and the policies. And, you know, I can give you the example of the Center for American Progress, which is a, a center-left think tank um, that was essentially what they called Hillary Clinton's administration in waiting. And that meant that um, they had hundreds of people who were experts on hundreds of things that were just eager and ready to jump into those political appointments and start hitting the ground running as soon as she was inaugurated. That obviously didn't happen. And then when Trump uh, was inaugurated, he looked around and didn't know who to hire because no one in Washington liked him. <laughs> so <laughs> right. he didn't have he didn't have those people. And he also didn't have those policies fleshed out. You know, I mean, Steve Bannon had some some, you know, dreams of anti-immigrant fervor, but um, he didn't have um, ready-made policies um, that he could put into place um, right away. And I think um, that's why this is such a scary moment because, um, you know, I think, for example, about um, uh, Senator J.D. Vance, who is very likely to be a senator very soon. And saying the, the phrase Senator J.D. Vance makes me throw up in my mouth a little. Senator J.D. Vance, uh, he's going to want to do stuff. Right, he's not just going to be um, yelling like Marjorie Taylor Greene. He's going to want to push through policies, and he needs somebody to help him write those policies. Because if you're a senator, you don't have time to put together a bill, like physically write a bill on every single issue. Um, and the staff is underpaid and young and working on seven issues at once, and so they rely on other people to help flush those out. You know, the number of times that people call us from the Hill and say. Um, can you help me come up with an idea on immigration? Or how how should I be responding, um, you know, on uh, you know on uh, workforce issues? What are some ideas that that you have? Folks that are outside the Hill or the administration are supplying and building up the the record and the evidence for those ideas, and then giving it to policymakers. They never had that machine for this wing of the Republican Party. You know, they had the social policy piece from from Heritage, and that's why Mike Pence was able to go in and, and right away knock out some social policy wins that, frankly, I don't think Donald Trump cared that much about. Um, but even on things like trade, he was making it up as he went along. He didn't have experts. He was just making it up. And so the scary thing now is thinking about, you know, if we get a President DeSantis with a Senator J.D. Vance, um, who actually have the machinations behind them to put forward legislation and sign it and put forward executive orders that mean something that aren't just a, you know, a show like the wall, which actually never got built, but he talked about it a lot. You know, that's a scary thing because, you know, Trump, like after they did the tax cuts during the Trump era, 
the Congress just basically was like, I don't know, do you have some post offices that need naming? Like, what do we do now? They didn't have any more ideas. And this is now setting them up to have those ideas next time they're in power. And that is frightening. Yeah. Susan, I am really interested in your, in your take on this, given that we both worked in Republican politics, right, for a long time. And the approach here is not what I would call conservatism. Certainly hasn't been. These, these, these policy preferences, these ideas have not been inside the conservative sort of policy establishment ever before. And, and I, I wonder what you think about how effective they might be at making a play for the support of a demographic that has traditionally leaned left. Well, first and foremost, Please never use the word Donald Trump and think tank together because. (laughs) (laughs) No. Fair. (laughs) And when we hear about these um, think tanks that want to develop Donald Trump-like policies, let's keep in mind that Donald Trump never had a policy he wasn't willing to change if he thought it would help him. So, That's the biggest problem for a lot of these groups, because don't think that they're not also trying to play to Donald Trump and trying to make a buck. I mean, that's the difference. They're not really acting. The ones that we see coming up are not acting in good faith whatsoever. They're really just being propped up. I mean, they have their C3 status, which is their non-for-profit status. But a lot of them are also getting a political status with a potential that's called a C4 that allows you to at least promote ideas, not the hard vote for, but support kind of thing, or super PAC. So a lot of these groups coming up are not are not true. But Lene makes an excellent point in saying Republicans have nowhere to go right now to find those ideas because mo- like the Marco Rubios had to shun the the groups that were actually policy oriented that Donald Trump blew up. So it, it's, it's a, it is a bind. And what they come up with is really, frankly, scary because you're basically going to see billionaires with agendas setting these things up and people are going to play to them because they want to get the funding. It's not the tradition. These are not going to act in traditional ways. They are not going to be ways where people go to a group and say, What's, what do I need to know on housing policy? They're going to say, what, what do you want your housing policy to be? Because what does your billionaire funder want? And that's what they're going to do. So when they say draft it, that's the danger of these groups showing up. They are not good faith act- actors. And let me be clear, there are, you know, or think tanks and organizations that are on the right and they do have a strong core sense of values and what their ideas are. And they've been around for decades, just like they have them on the left. But this new set is a whole different story. So, so I think there's, I think we might be able to separate these into two buckets. The ones that you're talking about, I would put in the bucket of the, the ones that are now helmed by former Trump administration officials. And we've talked about these in a, in a, in a very, uh, uh, joking way in the past when they were first set up, like the America First Policy Institute, right? And the Center for Renewing America. Those ones absolutely, I think, uh, uh, are, you're, you're describing them accurately. But then there's this other set that 
seem to be a lot more serious and focused on policy and not necessarily, you know, just doing it for the Donald's approval, like American Compass. And uh, last year, Mitt Romney proposed a, a universal child allowance um, that was closely aligned with the model from American Compass. Um, that group criticized Romney for not including work incentives, but this past June, there was a new version of the bill that included an earnings requirement. So what I'm what I'm trying to get at, Lene, is, is whether or not there is going to be any overlap or any interest from uh, from electeds on the left to entertain some of these ideas because it seems like, for example, a, ch- a universal child allowance seems like a thing that Democrats, by and large, might be interested in if it were framed the right way. And I, I just wonder if there's going to be any overlap here. That's all. Yeah. I mean, I think I would disaggregate two things. There are some ideas that are, um, you know, not um, haven't been popular with the Republican establishment in the past that have sounded more democratic that some on the right are are not talking about. Now, I'll I'll use the example of, um, you know, Ross Delthit just wrote a big piece about all the things um, at The New York Times, wrote a piece about all the things that the pro-life movement needs to do now to be truly pro-life if we are going to outlaw abortion. Ross Douthat is supported by approximately five other people probably that live at his house. I mean, I I think he's an incredibly thoughtful man and puts out a perspective that almost nobody in politics is actually going to stand up for. I cannot tell you one Republican policymaker at the state or federal level who is going to take up that charge. Because if they were going to be for supporting pregnant women, supporting children, supporting uh, women and their families, um, they would have done that already. And they've clearly not. So I think there's, you know, there are those folks that are trying to have a thoughtful conversation about what it means to um, take care of uh, of folks in our country, what it means to have a more um, family-based but um, more generous social welfare policy. Um, those people are not in Congress, unfortunately, and they're not in the state legislatures either. Then there's this whole set of things that's about like protectionism and America first and that kind of stuff. Listen, they've got all kinds of takers for that. And those are those are different sets of ideas. The um, isolationism, the um, protectionism, the, um, you know, that piece of the Trump agenda, the nationalism, the anti-immigrant piece, there are lots and lots of members of Congress who would be more than happy to take those ideas up. Um, so I think, you know, yes, if that first bucket of ideas actually had champions that were, you know, elected officials, Democrats would be delighted to have that conversation. And in fact, we we tried after, um, you know, Joe Manchin said, well, we can't get Build Back Better, but let's talk about, um, you know, the the expanded child tax credit um, with some of the Republicans. Great. There weren't any to come to the table. So <laughs> there's, you know, that's, that's nice, but it's not going to work. Um, and on the other side, those are not things that Democrats want to talk about. We're not going to talk about keeping immigrants out of this country. We're not going to talk about, um, you know, abandoning people who are being tortured by Putin. Like, that's, it's just there's no overlap on that right. piece. Okay. Can I just say, but there is one issue that could not just be quick, and that was early on in the Biden administration, the uh, minimum wage. That would have been something that you would have seen the Tom Cottons and a few others who want to get that populist kind of voter that they think they can attract, you know, blue collar men. And that would have been something. But again, I don't think they're coming out of the think tanks on this. I think they're very politically timed 
issues that aren't thoughtful, frankly. And, and another one is like hating on social media companies, right? So I think uh, um, there's a lot like, of alignment on that. Yeah, folks like Josh Hawley and um, and you know those kind of faux populists uh, of the Harvard Brigade. Um, they, you know, they kind of want to team up with the Elizabeth Warrens to yell at the social media companies. Sure, fine. But do I think that, like, yelling at social media companies is the number one issue for voters right now? Absolutely not. Okay. After the explosive testimony by former White House staffer Cassidy Hutchinson, there's been more movement from the January 6th committee. Last week, former acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney voiced his support for Hutchinson on Twitter after she testified before the committee. I can't believe this is happening. He followed up with op-eds in USA Today and the Charlotte Observer and an appearance on CNN. Mulvaney told Jake Tapper that until Hutchinson's testimony, he didn't think Trump was capable of inciting the riot. And in his Charlotte Observer op-ed, Mulvaney noted that much of the evidence is being presented by Republicans, including Bill Barr, uh, Arizona State House Speaker Rusty Bowers, and Hutchinson. So he wrote, yes, it is possible that all of those lifelong Republicans succumbed to Trump derangement syndrome. It is possible they decided to ignore lifelong political affiliation. It is also possible they chose to perjure themselves about what they saw, heard, and know. But if they didn't, and half the country isn't paying attention, then that half of the country is clinging firmly to an opinion of January 6, 2021 that is based on either false or incomplete information. And clinging firmly to a belief based on false or incomplete information can lead to disastrous results. January 6 itself is a stark reminder of that. Mick Mulvaney, everybody. <laughs> uh, so to kick it off. I mean, we talked about Jan- January 6th last week and I think the week before, but this is like a sort of a blockbuster week for them. How are you both thinking about Mulvaney's move away from Trump? This is big, Susan. Well, as a comms person, we call it reputation management. Hmm. <laughs> That's all this is, folks. Um, he sees the way it's going. Um, it's smart to move away from Trump on these parts of it, but you know, again, the question I ask is, would he vote for Trump in 2024? Give me that answer, and I'll tell you what that what what he said really means. <laughs> because my guess is he's looking for a job somewhere, or looking to get appointed on a board. And he, in order to get these board appointments, he's got to turn. He's got to like step away from it a little bit. So that was a really good opportunity. Um, I also think a lot of people are really scared who gave testimony. Because, like, stuff's coming out that they didn't think was going to come out. I mean, let's not forget almost a thousand people interviewed, people who worked for the Trump administration. Not a good look if if you're not sure if you gave the right answer or not. So some people, I think, are going to be reworking their testimony. But, yeah, that's all reputation management. Mick Mulvaney, like, pish posh. Like, really? That's what you have? Yeah. yeah, but but also now Cipollone is going to testify. White House counsel uh, Cipollone, right? So now he's going to come testify. More people are now coming forward or agreeing to cooperate or whatever, making <laughs> deals with their lawyers. Right. And like, like they're like, oh, shit, I got to do something. Mike made this point last week that, uh, how did he put it? The rats on the Trump Tannic are now scurrying. Um, Lene, Lene, so uh, like, 
here, here's the question, right? There is, uh, Cassidy Hutchison is not a hero. These people are not heroes. They like, we should not be talking about them as if they are heroes. Yes, we should applaud them for doing the right thing now, like for telling the truth, but like that does not absolve you of doing all the things that led up to that moment and through that moment and up until now when you finally got a deal or whatever. But how should we be thinking about like that reality along with creating the potential permission structure for Republican voters to move on from Trump in the way that now all his people seem to be turning on him. How are you thinking about that? I don't think all of his people are turning on okay, him. Not I think all. a handful not of all. people but, that but don't talk to him anymore <laughs> are turning on him. And, you know, I mean, I think uh, you said the the rats on the Trump tannic, but actually what this is, is a bunch of people who um, lit matches and threw them onto, you know, a, a forest uh, during the middle of a drought and then later are like, oh my God, I can't believe people's houses burned down. What? So like I get, and yes, it, Cassidy Hutchinson was um, incredibly poised and incredibly brave. Um, and uh, I cannot help but read you what my friend Sarah Longwell said on Twitter this morning, which is all I've been able to think about all day long. She said, I will never stop wondering what might have happened if Trump officials had resigned loudly en masse, like our pals across the pond, and told the country what was going on in real time, rather than leak anonymously and write books after it was all over. So I do think you get some credit for at some point coming clean, um, but they could have done this before when they had power and they chose not to. So, you know, I just don't think like I hadn't even seen the Mick Mulvaney thing until you sent it to me as prep for this podcast. That's how much it matters. And I wish it mattered more, but I guarantee you my parents haven't seen it. I guarantee you most Republican voters haven't seen it, nor do they even remember who Mick Mulvaney is. So, you know, I, I agree reputation management, um, you know, and, and yes, we should create a permission structure. But what I'm worried about is that all we're doing is creating a permission structure to move on to Ron DeSantis and a, you know, an, another, you know, the next Trump 2.0 um, and not actually move on from Trumpism or, um, you know, the anti-democratic efforts or attempts to steal the election um, that, that we're facing. And if that's all we get is President Ron DeSantis, I am not satisfied with that. Yeah, that's not a good enough consolation prize. And also the thing that I noted last week was that with maybe one or two exceptions, we have heard, heard, heard zero mea culpas in all of this reputation laundering. Like, okay, you're, tell, you're, you're telling us the ugly details about what happened there, but you were there. You were, you, you were there. You were in the room and you helped it happen. So I'd like to hear a little bit of remorse. Um, and apparently it. that's expecting too much. So anyway, you mentioned DeSantis. And if you were looking for a real winner— uh, from all of these hearings, it would be Ron DeSantis. He hasn't officially launched a 2024 campaign, but there are a ton of signs that he, you know his star is rising. Um, Dan Eberhardt, who's a prominent Republican donor, told Reuters that major Republican donors uh, over the last six months have moved toward DeSantis. He estimated uh, that six months ago they broke about 75-25 for Trump, and now it's 66-33 for DeSantis. Um <laughs> Eberhardt said, DeSantis feels more fresh and more calibrated than Trump. He's easier to defend and he's less likely to embarrass and he's got the momentum. You know, I think it's pretty easy to read um, Newsom's ad attacking DeSantis as a sign that Democrats are thinking about him as a potential 2024 Republican nominee. Um, 
Here's the thing, though, by the way, that I think Eberhard is missing, which is he's just focusing on the high-dollar donor set. And as I've mentioned before on this podcast, the high-dollar donor set is like yesterday's news. Like, I don't care which way they're breaking because it doesn't matter. You know why? Because they're not funding campaigns at the levels that grassroots donors are. Not even close. And that changed in 2015 and 2016. Everything changed. It used to be that the most the, the 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 neck that turned the head on a on a presidential campaign was the chief fundraiser, whoever that was. That and I mean the person doing the high dollar fundraising events. Now it's the team raising the digital dollars because that's where the the lion's share of the money comes from. And guess what? Those people are not breaking for DeSantis. So but, anyway, but, but that's what I think. But there is one thing that's happening with this, and again, it's it's a little thing. But I am one who now believes in just little things start building up is that with the with the hearings with the January 6 hearings i agree that it doesn't t- change minds republicans minds on donald trump but it does want them to move on and with donald trump just keep go- keeps going backwards it does people do want to look forward because they see it's not a permission structure they'll still tell you that you know the big lie and all of that but they were like, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with that. Like, tell me what you're doing for me tomorrow. And DeSantis is putting out a message that he's willing to talk about tomorrow. And Trump is just saying, like, no, I'm stuck in 2020. So I think that's where the movement is coming from. And that hurts Trump is that no one wants to hear a shtick anymore because it's just so backwards looking. And I think the question really is, is Donald Trump going to run or not, right? Because um, he is um, he's either going to be the nominee if he runs, or as the Wall Street Journal said, I think last week, he's going to be a kingmaker. And Ron DeSantis is not going to run against Trump. He's not going to run against Trump at all, I don't think. And he's certainly not going to run against Trump and win. Because if Trump is on the ballot in the Republican primary, he will win. So this is really a question of, are they persuading Trump that he needs to move on um, and that DeSantis can carry on, you know, his legacy and he can have kind of a graceful out to be the kingmaker in the party um, rather than the nominee? Um, And, you know, I don't think that the high dollar donors really matter for that. I also think the proportion of high dollar donors that are watching the January 6th hearing is like 80 quadrillion times more than voters like they they don't have jobs like they have time to sit and yeah. watch this stuff <laughs> they don't have they jobs have, their money works for them what are you they talking have about no jobs <laughs> of course they have time to watch the january 6 hearings so like th- it's just not representative um but i do think the scary thing about ron DeSantis is absolutely if trump, trump doesn't run he can tap into that grassroots network he's already building it Um, And he does have the capacity to raise that grassroots money, the digital money. And also um, these billionaires have the capacity to build up these think tanks that are going to give him the ideas so that they're more prepared to uh, put their agenda into place than they were when surprise Donald Trump showed up and then nobody knew what to do. So I think that's the pairing that's really scary to me. Yeah. Susan, there's one other point that uh, David French raised recently, which I thought was actually interesting. And it was one that he said, like, that no one seems to be talking about, which is the eventuality where DeSantis does take a run at Trump. And what would it mean? What would he have to do? What kind of candidate would he have to be? Who would he have to appeal to in order to make a serious challenge, right? Are, Are there enough Republicans who 
at that point, we'll be ready to move on from Trump, but not not dwell on all of the issues, not indict him, not right, but actually just try to move on with somebody who's a little bit more um, palatable on the surface, but far more effective at, you know, how are you thinking about how DeSantis would have to run to win a Well, I think he's doing it already because he's spending a lot of time in Donald Trump's head. Donald Trump is following this left and right. And don't forget, he's a Florida resident now. He sees what what DeSantis is doing. DeSantis is the one candidate so far that looks like a potential contender who will not say, I will not run if Donald Trump runs for president. That alone is irking enough. He has $100 million in the bank. That's DeSantis has that. That's a lot of money. That makes you a player. Trump recognizes that. And if not for Trump being afraid of law enforcement of some shape or form, he he wouldn't be even talking about running at this stage because it doesn't make sense for him to announce, as rumor has had it, that he potentially would announce. I think he's going to say, I'm going to announce that I'm going to announce. But he because he likes being in that space, he likes controlling it. So his game plan is to own the space until no one else can be viable. And then he gets to be kingmaker. But Ron DeSantis throws him for a loop there. And I think, again, as long as Donald Trump is talking about 2020, people don't want to hear it. They just don't. And he's going to have to shift. And here's the thing. He does not have the capacity He is not smart enough to shift. He doesn't know what to talk to, and he won't pay for the staff that he needs. Okay, let's leave it there uh, for this segment. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you're watching under the radar. Lene, what do you have for us? So I I know we were all very focused on the Dobbs decision at the end of the Supreme Court term, as well we should be, since that's, you know, the first time in history that the court has taken away someone's constitutional right. Um, But there was also another big decision that I think is really underplayed in terms of how it's going to impact policy going forward and also the actions of the Biden administration on some of the issues that we've talked about. And that was the EPA ruling. So what the Supreme Court said um, was, Uh, that the EPA could not um, regulate in the way they wanted to to address climate change. Um, And it it really, the the upshot of it was that it um, really pulled back the ability to use administrative action to address what they call major questions, right? And so they said, um, if there are issues that are of economic or political significance, um, and, and they're major questions like, you know, should the EPA be able to regulate CO2, um, which is not a, you know, poisonous um, thing in the air by itself, but as we know, is, is poisonous in the way that it is currently um, manifesting, uh, they, they can't do that because that is a major question um, that an agency shouldn't be able to decide, that they need to go back to Congress and get that done. Um, and so what that means is we're going to see a lot of challenges to other administrative actions. And number one on that list for me is student loan cancellation. So if there is any attempt to wipe away any amount of student loans, not under the um, kind of fraud provisions that the Biden administration has been using, but under the Elizabeth Warren, Chuck Schumer argument that you can just use a pen and wipe it away, 
you better believe that this Supreme Court is going to think that that is a major question of economic and political significance. And that is going to leave borrowers in limbo until we get up to this court, which is probably going to throw that out. It really limits the Biden administration's ability to do that. It could also have implications on things like DACA um, and immigration, where um, the executive has been given a lot of credence to do what it wants. Um, And uh, so I really think that this is just one um, building block in this Supreme Court's effort to really roll back what they call the regulatory state. As a lightning follow-up, is there any uh, glimmer of hope and uh, bipartisanship on student loan cancellation in Congress? Is that something that there's any no room? Okay, not even oh, a little bit. Shaking. Okay, definitely not. Well, I will say, I mean, Betsy DeVos's rule was so bad on the students that had been actually defrauded that um, eleven Republicans in the Senate um, voted to um, stop it from going into effect. So, but you have to be DeVos bad to get. Get to that level. And it's really hard to kind of get get that bad. So I think, um, you know, on and that piece, the Biden administration is fixed and did a big, um, you know, did a big rollout of actually this week, a new rule on what they call the borrower defense rule, which is for folks that have been fraud, defrauded. Um, so they, they fixed that piece. There was some Republican support for fixing it, probably not as far as the Biden administration went, but um, not as badly as DeVos wanted it to look. Okay. Got it. Susan, what do you got? Reconciliation. It's mm. being talked about again. There's a really small, short window for anything to get done before the August recess because they just come back from the July recess um, next week. <laughs> so they have to get ready for the August recess. It's hard to be a member of Congress. It, it is. It is. It's a rough life. But um, I'm watching specifically to see if they go that far. Because Mitch McConnell's making quite a few threats. And, of course, at the end of the day, Mitch McConnell will say, we were successful in moving our agenda forward as if he won a vote, unlike what happens with Democrats. So when I'm looking in there is that are they willing to table it just to get the negotiation rights for a cap on insulin? It's the one thing that they could get bipartisan support on and maybe just call it a day. Well, and I'll add to that, though, you know, I think what Mitch McConnell has done is setting up this same kind of situation that we saw um, with the two trains of Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill um, coming into Um, you know, into collision last September, because what Mitch McConnell has said is this competitiveness bill, the China competitiveness bill, that a version of which has passed both the House and the Senate, um, which is bipartisan and could get passed and is a huge priority for Chuck Schumer and the president, um, that they will tank it if if Democrats go forward with a Democrat-only reconciliation bill on totally other topics. So now that's putting, again, a choice between the bipartisan thing Thing, um, and the thing that Democrats could do all by themselves. And there's part of the Democratic Party that's very, very interested in the competitiveness bill and part that could give less than zero Fs about the competitiveness bill and really, really want what's in Build Back Better. So we're going to have a showdown again. Um, and uh, the reconciliation um, window, the vehicle to use it turns into a pumpkin um, on October 1st. So the deadline is ticking. Okay, I have a really quick thing uh, that I want to mention that is not about aliens and not about crypto. So, 
Uh, it's about something that has never happened before, happened on Wednesday, which is that the head of the FBI and the head of MI5, both together, made a joint public appearance to warn about what they called the biggest long-term threat to economic and national security for both the U.S. and the U.K. and allies in Europe and elsewhere. And do you know what that thing is? TikTok. Actually, it's China. So the uh, we'll get to TikTok in a second. Investigations have skyrocketed since uh, 2008 by 700%. And uh, the Chinese apparently have been using SPACs as a vehicle for this type of corporate espionage, and their MO is very covert. So they're, it's basically about Chinese um, uh, uh, spying on U.S. companies and gathering of, of, of U.S. persons' data and Europeans' data, uh, for example, via vehicles like TikTok. And the chaser to this story is the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee, um, uh, the chair and the top Republican, so that would be uh, Marco Rubio and Mark Warner, um, uh, have just called on the FTC to investigate uh, TikTok and their Chinese parent company, ByteDance, due to re- repeated re- misrepresentations over the handling of U.S. data. So that the, they have said, no, we we can't access Chinese nationals, Chinese pe- employees in China cannot actually access U.S. Uh, people's data via this app. Turns out they can, and they they have been doing this since uh, um, all along. And so I think as recently as January 2022, if you have been using TikTok, then the Chinese basically have your data. So. Shot chaser, wow. pay attention I'm to this. So happy I it suck is, at technology. I mean, <laughs> it, it is like, uh, look when 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 the when a when a 25 year veteran of the CIA told me don't download that app to your phone, I said okay. <laughs> so uh, so anyway, uh, pay attention to this one. I think it's just the first of uh, of a building uh, building narrative. I think we just it just hasn't risen to the surface enough yet. Um, Scary. Yeah. All right. Gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter. Susan? And I'm at Del Percio S on Twitter. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. And if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>